Good morning, everyone. Before we start, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to some announcements. You'll find them on your, in your bulletin. But we have two particular announcements that I think are noteworthy. First of all, Susie, in the back of the church, has been doing a great job through the years with a directory, and she's going to a revision. If you need your address and etc. Uh, changed, we're going to press soon, right? This is it. The, the train's pulling away from the station today. This week. So if you have changes, please give them to Susie. And then on November 17th, we have the harvest meal, and Sandy has an announcement for us for that. Thank you. And then we have the, the team in Jamaica. Please keep praying for them. And are there any other announcements that you'd like to make? Okay, let's get started. Through the years, I have had the privilege of, of being a lay preacher in a pulpit. And I've made this comment to you on, on various occasions, but I genuinely mean it. Um, this is a sacred privilege that I feel that I have. And Pastor Gary and the church leaders have been very entrusting to me to allow me to have this privilege, and I thank you for that. Uh, even allow me to serve in this place here today. In the same vein, I've, I've always wondered how Pastor Gary has connected with some of you who have had the same privilege to preach or teach Sunday school or do something public. I know from my own particular experience, it's always some crazy text or email at some wild and crazy hour, um, morning or evening, uh, this particular time, uh, it was in September, and I received an email from Gary, and it was short and sweet, and it simply said, Are you available to preach on November 3rd? And I would confessedly tell you that when I received it, I was not all that thrilled. I was looking forward to my October, and it was going to be pretty busy, and it takes me a long time to pull a message together, and I kind of was a little... But then I thought about... 1 Peter 2.9, which is a verse that has really, in a sense, marked my life for many years now. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For many years now, I have felt that this verse has been my personal call to action. Uh, a sort of a marching orders for me. Though I am chosen to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, that's what I feel I can do, at least in this community. For years, I've written this verse on the top of my desk calendar and I'm in my office. I buy these, I don't know, three foot by two foot calendars monthly and you tear off the sheets. And every month, I tear off the sheet and on the top, I write out 1 Peter 2.9. And so I've thought about this verse a lot. Uh, when I was offered this opportunity to preach, that verse came to me and I couldn't wiggle out. This is an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I needed to take it. So I responded back to Gary and within a day he got back to me because I asked him, well, any theme, anything you want me to preach on, any verse? And he said, preach as you feel led. Well, in my devotions that morning, I, I read through the one-year Bible, and in my devotions that morning was Colossians 1, especially 15 through 20. 
based upon that passage which I read in the morning and based upon the guiding direction of 1 Peter 2.9 in my life to be able to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, I felt simply led to preach on the excellencies of Christ. So I began preparing this message, the excellent Christ, and I've treated Colossians 1.15-20 as the anchor verse. To further confirm this choice was the occurrence that Pat LeCare in two out of the last three Sundays has preached on, first, on Colossians 1 uh, on the cosmic Christ who was there yesterday, today, and forever and who has redeemed the cosmos to himself. When Pat preached the first time, I emailed him and I thanked him for his message. And then I also communicated to him that I had been similarly led to preach in the same passage. And that it was thankful to God, through the Holy Spirit, that he had worked through both of us to be in this passage to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And I've seen this happen numerous times through the years where Sunday school lessons and preaching and have, have been guided by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit had led us to be into this same passage um, but there, would, there was not going to be an overlap. And uh, I found that to be uh, very exciting. I even found it exciting when Pat closed, and he probably remembers, maybe he doesn't, but in his closing prayer on the sermon, the first time, he quoted 1 Peter 2.9, thanking God for the ability to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So this morning I'm here to um, proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I believe it will augment Pat's uh, work in the last two out of three Sundays. You know, we, we call ourselves Christians. We attend a Christian church. We study the Bible and Christian books and literature. We have Christian Sunday school and Christian missions and Christian ministries and Christian seminaries. We claim that our country is exceptional because of our Christian founding heritage. We distribute Christian tracts. We listen to Christian radio. We watch Christian TV. We are proud that our culture is based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. I have even been called a Christian lawyer, which some people have jokingly laughed and said that's an oxymoron and it may well be. But the, but the point of all of this is that we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. We readily call ourselves Christians. And we're willing to let the world around us identify us with Christ and call us Christians. This is really huge. It's huge because we are locking our identity with one man who lived nearly 2,000 years ago. But it's because Jesus Christ is exceptional. He's excellent. We simply take for granted who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. So really, it is my privilege this morning to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, it's my goal that for you, for us, that we will trust Christ more seriously and more fervently and that we will go out and be more willing to share the excellencies of Jesus Christ to this very needy culture that's walking in the dark without chance yet to see this marvelous light. Our anchor passage and starting point is in Colossians 1. Let me read it. Uh, it's verses 15 through 20, and then we'll dig deeper into this topic together. So this is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would speak to us from your word, from what is said by your Holy Spirit. Draw us to yourself and cause us to follow you more fervently. And cause us, Lord, to recognize how excellent is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be encouraged to proclaim his excellency to the world around us. We pray that that might be the end goal and you would be blessed and glorified through that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It is surmised that Paul wrote those words to the church at Colossae in A.D. 60. And he did it to confront head-on a misunderstanding that was happening at the time that was, mis- that was minimizing Jesus Christ. So in a pointed way, as noted in verses 15 through 20, Paul did not hold back in describing Jesus Christ in all of his excellence. That Christ was the image of God. That he was the creator, the sustainer, the head of the church, the preeminent one, the reconciler, the one who would bring peace. In so doing, Paul proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus Christ. In two out of the last three Sundays, Pat came up here and he proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in the same manner, I would like to take this privilege this morning to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, by limiting the scope of what I want to say in three areas, I want to say uh, that Jesus Christ is excellent in his uniqueness, in the fact that he is part of the Trinity, and in the fact that he shed very, very, very special blood. So let me start with uniqueness. Jesus Christ is undeniably excellent in his uniqueness. He is a historical figure. He is not a mythical or fictional figure. He lived and walked on this earth nearly 2,000 years ago. He claimed to be God. And upon examination, it's evident from his life that he is so distinct and so unique that it proves to us that he is, in fact, divine. Emmanuel. God with us. Let me share with you a compelling list of those distinctives so that you too will recognize how excellent he is in this uniqueness. Number one, he entered this world in an unusual way. He was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a a virgin. Figure that out. He, He was born in a lowly manger in Bethlehem, even though he was king of kings and lord of lords. Number two, there were many specific prophecies of his coming in the Old Testament. When I came to Christ in 1977 and recognized and was taught 
all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the coming Christ, I was convinced back then, really right at the beginning of my walk with Christ, that this was the real deal. I couldn't figure out how the 66 books of the Bible could be written by men undirected by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Men couldn't do that over 1,500 years on three continents and three different languages. They just couldn't do it. And the prophecies, for me, tied it all together. There are over 200 specific prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, which at the very least was not written, it was finished being written 400 years before Christ was born. Number three, he lived his whole life without sinning. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but he did not sin. 1 John 3.5 You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.21 and 22 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Though tempted, he lived a full life without sinning. Number four, he performed miracles. He turned water into wine. He calmed the sea. He walked on water. He multiplied loaves and fish. He did miracles, many miracles, in the presence of many witnesses. Number five, he spoke unforgettable words. He taught in parables that reached into the hearts of men and women. Then and even now. That he was able to teach in that way. And then he, maybe crowning event, preached the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And it's been repeated and studied and meditated on by millions for centuries. How many times the Lord's Prayer has been recited? Matthew 5. He spoke unforgettable words. Number six. He had a lasting and universal Influence on all of mankind. Our country's ethics are grounded on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And there have been many people who have set up churches and ministries all over the world through the centuries because of him. And even our dating system is based on Jesus Christ. B.C., before Christ, in A.D., the Latin Anno Domino, meaning in the year of our Lord, the Lord Jesus so he has, an, he has had an enormous influence. One man has had an enormous influence on all of mankind. Number seven, he, he has satisfied the spiritual hunger of man. I have heard it said and taught that in every person is a God-shaped void that only Christ can fill. And for those of you who have come to Christ and know how Christ has meant everything to you, you would say amen. And Christ has said... Uh, John 6.35 I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Number eight. He knew man's thoughts. Clairvoyant, but more than that. When he spoke with the Samaritan woman at the well, he knew about her husbands and that, con- that really stood her up straight. Or when he changed the, the loaves and fish into large quantities the people had an intent to make him king and he knew that and because of that he fled. He knew man's thoughts. Number nine, he knew the future. 
In Luke 18.31 it reads, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Christ knew all of these things. He spoke numerous times and said, My hour has not yet come. He knew he came to this earth for the purpose of dying on the cross. He knew the future. Number ten, he could heal sickness and exercise power over death. He gave sight to the blind and and hearing to the deaf. He healed many sicknesses, leprosy, etc. He brought back to life Jairus' daughter. He raised Lazarus from the grave. He, he showed and displayed that he had num- just unbelievable supernatural power. Number 11, he claimed that he had the power to forgive sins. Big claim. And if he just said, I have the power to forgive sins, what good is that? But I love the way he did it. Listen to math, uh, Matthew 9. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to man. I loved how Christ proved that he could forgive sin. It's like an in-your-face. I love it. Number 12, he claimed to be the Messiah, Matthew 14, 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. That is a big, bold claim to the Jewish people who are waiting for the Messiah. And he claimed to be the Messiah. Number 13, he claimed that he could give eternal life. Another big, bold claim. In John 10:27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Number 14, in the same way that he came into this world in an unusual way, he left this world in an unusual way. With his disciples present, he was ascended up into the clouds. Angels said... That's the way he went. That's the way he's going to come in an unusual way. And then number 15, and I won't go into depth on this, but it's the analysis, liar, lord, or lunatic. It was spoken by C.S. Lewis in an intellectual way and Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But the premise is he, he lived his life on earth in the presence of very many people. And his life was recorded in depth. We have it in Scripture. In some respects, it was unbelievable. And the question is, when he was saying these things, was he a liar? When he was saying and doing these things, was he a crazy man, a lunatic? Or when he was saying and doing these things, was he in fact the Lord Jesus Christ, 
God with us. And the bottom line of that is that he is the Lord. Upon analysis, he is the Lord. The people that were with him for those several years, sleeping with him, talking with him, traveling with him, they knew him intimately. After he was ascended, they kept saying that Jesus was Lord and many to their death. Their lives after Christ was ascended proved that they believed that he was the Lord. So Jesus' life on earth is proof to us that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. He is excellent in his multifaceted uniqueness. In all these ways, we can easily and confidently proclaim his excellencies to this needy world around us. The second um, area that I want to speak to you about regarding Christ's excellence is that he is part of the Trinity, directing your attention back to our anchor verse in Colossians, Colossians 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This implicates the Trinity. Christ was in God the Father. The Father was in Christ and in the Spirit. The the Trinity is a doctrine central to our Christian faith. But it must be understood that the word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. It's a word used outside of Scripture to describe the fact that our God is one, but our God is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This concept of the Trinity is both marvelous and mysterious. There have been inadequate analogies attempted to try to explain this doctrine, like the egg. It has three parts, the shell, the yolk, and the white, three in one. Or, or water, you can have uh, solid, liquid, and vapor. You can have ice and, and vapor and, and water. Or even myself, a man, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a father, three in one. These are analogies trying to explain uh, the Trinity, but certainly coming up short. Though the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, the doctrine in the existence of the Trinity is undeniable. For we see, for example, Christ at the time of his baptism, recorded in Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven... You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So we have the Son, the Father, and the Spirit all together in that situation. We have to recognize that there's something like the Trinity happening here. Or Christ speaking the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or John 14, 26, when Christ is talking about the coming Holy Spirit. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I have said to you. Jesus talking about the Spirit that's coming from the Father. They're there. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So though Trinity is not written in the Bible, the existence of the Trinity is there. And though we may not fully be able to grasp this concept of this Trinity on this side of heaven, 
The implication of this concept is wonderful. It allows us a way of understanding how our great God can be at the same time just, merciful, and gracious. And still be God, and not a fraud, and not a liar. And when I was thinking about this, I was just so encouraged that, okay, so among other purposes, the Trinity has a purpose. Because we're told in Scripture that God is just. We're told in Scripture God is merciful. We're told in Scripture that God is gracious. And let me define the terms as simply and clearly as I can, and then you'll see where I'm coming from. Just is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting more than you deserve. So let me pose the problem to you. And you could sit in a room and scratch your head for a million years and try to solve it. If God is just and merciful and gracious, how does God bring his woe-begotten sinful creation back to himself through some plan of salvation? He's just, he's got to punish sin. He's merciful, he forgives sin. But how can he do it at the same time? He does it through the Trinity. And in my life, I would tell you as I'm nearing 65, I have been surprised in trusting God how... I'll pray for a solution. And God will provide the solution in a manner and fashion that I could have never conceived of if I did, in fact, sit in a room for a million years. And then you go, aha, that's awesome. The Trinity falls into that category. You see, because at the cross, in his great love for us, he created a situation where mercy and grace could be extended to us. And he still acted justly because a just payment was extracted for our sins. He did it through Christ. He did it by coming down to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, God with us, Emmanuel. And he went to the cross and bore the sins of the Father. The flexibility of the Trinity relationship made this all possible. Let me try to explain it, maybe in in terms that are more 21st century. And I ask you with your mind's eye to go with me into the courtrooms where I practice in Worcester County and have practiced for the last 40 years. And on this particular day in the courtroom, a defendant is going to get sentenced. He committed murder. The trial occurred a while ago. The jury came back with a guilty finding. Now he's coming in front of the judge for sentencing. So the judge is sitting on high, on his bench, in his robe, and they march the guilty defendant in before him. Handcuffed. Bailiffs on both sides. And the case is called, and the judge pronounces the sentence. Life imprisonment. It's a just sentence. And then to the surprise of everyone in the courtroom, the judge stands up and takes off his robe and walks down to the floor level next to the defendant and orders the bailiffs to take his handcuffs off. And he reaches into his pocket and he gets his keys in his wallet. And while the handcuffs are coming off, he gives them to the defendant. And then he tells the bailiffs to put the handcuffs on him and to march him out to go serve that sentence for life. And the bailiff does. And there stands the defendant holding some keys and wallet, and now what does he do? Does he run after the judge and say, Your Honor, Your Honor, let me try to serve some of that time with you. I can help, I can help. 
Or does he, by faith, accept that his payment is made in full and walk out of that courtroom as a free man? Justice and mercy have both been met, but added to that, there is grace. He's got more than he's deserved. He has a wallet and keys and the foothold on life to start and be prosperous. That's how God can be consistent in the Trinity. And that's why I think the Trinity makes Christ excellent. Christ is part, the working part of that Trinity that allows us to have salvation. The third point that I'd like to share regarding what I believe is the excellency of Christ has to do with the shedding of his blood, his very special blood. Again, directing our attention to our anchor passage, verses 19 and 20 in Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Hebrews 9.22 says that indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. We see this reference to the blood of Christ as a thread through the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.19 with the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1.7 the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Romans 5.9 therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Acts 20.28 Uh, which he obtained the life, which he obtained with his own blood. The implication of this, the point I want to make about this, is that there is only one currency that God accepts for our sins. It's the special blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we can do to pay for our salvation. There is nothing that we can bring that will be accepted. It is all counterfeit currency from us. It is only the blood of Christ that pays for sin. And that is why Paul was so confident when he wrote to the Corinthians and he told them, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This, this past week, I asked Siri, how many people live in the world presently? And Siri told me that it's 7.7 billion, a big number. But the number is bigger if you consider, if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve and add all of those people who have walked the world, we're talking billions and billions of people. So it's fair to say that Jesus Christ is one person out of billions and billions of people who have walked this earth and none compare with him. He is the only one that God has identified to be the Savior. He is distinct. He is unique. He is special. He is excellent. He is incomparable. He is the chosen Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He is the one and only Redeemer. But not only this. It wasn't His hair. It wasn't His teeth. It wasn't His fingernails. It wasn't His skin. It wasn't His liver or His kidneys or His heart. It was His blood that God chose as the median to wash away sins. Blood. Of all things, blood. Kind of gross, kind of weird. I mean, let's put speed bumps into the thinking here. It's blood. It's a little gross. Why blood? 
I have a theory, and I want to share it with you. Now, aside from the fact that there was foreshadowing of the coming of Christ and the sacrifice that would be made through Christ in all of the Old Testament sacrifices, and aside from the fact that the Passover itself was a very clear foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, where an unblemished lamb was needed to use its blood to paint the door up and down and over the top, kind of like a cross, that the blood that the Passover angel would see painted by the unblemished lamb would cause the Passover angel to pass over so that these people would be freed from bondage and allowed to go out to serve God. Aside from that foreshadowing, I have a theory and it rests on the excellency of Christ. Salvation is a gift. It was paid for in full by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the Ephesians, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man will boast. Jesus paid the price that God required and accepted. The currency for this purchase just so happened to be Christ's blood. It is not cash or coin, bauble or bangle, trinket or toy, prize or award. It certainly is not promises or good intentions. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that is what God requires, and if Christ shed a sufficient amount of it, then there is absolutely nothing left for us to do and nothing left for us to be able to do. But, how silly and sinful and prideful we are. And I might parenthetically say that sin and silly and pride all have the letter I at the center. We want to feel like we've worked our way into God's good favor by how great we are and what great things we've done. Friends, we we just don't have the currency that God accepts. How audacious for us to think that we have something to give God. We have nothing close to his special blood. The Lamb's blood, the Redeemer's blood, our Savior's blood. We have nothing like that to offer. That is the one valid reason why I think God determined that the acceptable currency for the payment of our sins is Christ's blood. Because we have nothing to offer that can compete with it. We have nothing that's in that league. But yet we want to help with our salvation. But God just has made it so clear for us. Don't we get it? We are made to glorify God. He does not share his glory with any other. We should be thankful enough that he has given us this free, fully purchased gift of eternal life without having to add anything on top. He doesn't need our help. He just desires our praise and gratitude. In this situation, Christ is truly excellent and he deserves our praise. And listen to this. I think this is the most important. He and the Father have worked out a payment plan that totally excludes us. It's a payment plan that totally excludes us. How great is that? Though we sinners try and try and try to gain some credit for eternal salvation, we need to trust Paul's words to the Corinthians Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away, the new has come. All this is from God. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It is from God. And I think Christ is excellent because he sheds special blood that we can't play in the same field with. We can't equate to it. It's all from God. Christ is excellent because he shed very special blood. So this concludes my proclamation of the excellencies of Christ, his uniqueness, his participation in the Trinity and his special blood. But the challenge now, as always, is what are we going to do with what we've heard? When Jesus was nearing the end of his life and his so-called hour had come, he had to go through an interaction with then-Governor Pontius Pilate in front of a very unruly Jewish crowd. And at that time, under pressure by the chief priests and elders and under pressure by this unruly crowd, Pilate capitulated and he released the Barabbas instead of Christ. And then he had Christ standing next to him. And he had to make a decision. And in that very tense moment in front of that very unruly Jewish crowd, he raised a question that has reverberated through the centuries. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What a question. It's not a question for the Jewish crowd only. It's a question for us too. Jesus is preeminent. He's exceptional and distinct and unique. He's part of the Trinity. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's excellent. And among his many excellencies is the fact that with him is no neutral ground. There is no neutral position you can take with Christ He made it very clear when he said it, recorded at Matthew 12.30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In our anchor passage in Colossians 1.18, it says that he is the firstborn, and that in everything he might be preeminent. He does not share his glory with others. He does not have to. And shame on us if we put him in that less than preeminent position. There is a bumper sticker that has been around for quite some time. Thank you. Um, That absolutely gets under my skin. And maybe you too. I just just bristle at at this bumper sticker. It was created in 2000 by Warsaw-based graphic designer Piotr Majodoszeniak as an entry in an international art exhibit, and the Coexist movement picked up this uh, configuration as its banner. I didn't know that there was a Coexist movement, but there's a Coexist movement. In any event, the, the letters of Coexist stand for C is for Islam, O is for pacifism, E is the symbol for gay rights and gender equality, X is the Star of David for Judaism, I is the symbol for paganism, S is the symbol for Taoism, the yin and yang, and T, at the end, is the symbol for Christianity, the cross. The main idea behind these bumper stickers is that no religion or no movement is better than the other. That's preposterous. It's insulting. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Salvation through our excellent Savior is undeniably exclusive. It is the only way to enter into an eternal relationship with our God, our Creator. 
Don't ever let Jesus Christ be lowered in your mind to a position down around some other gods or some other beliefs. He is excellent. He is exclusive. And I'll go you one step further. He's inclusive. And a lot of times we get beaten up in the marketplace of thought when people say that your religion isn't inclusive and you need to be inclusive. Well, let me tell you, our religion is inclusive. Because though the only way to get to God is through the exclusive cross of Christ, at the base of the cross, the ground so-called is level. And people can come to that cross from the north and the south and the east and the west. They can come from any sin and any sinful behavior. And our inclusive Christ will open his arms and bring him in with love. Eternal love. Our Jesus Christ is both exclusive and inclusive. So the question still reverberates though. What will we do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? If you have not trusted him as your Savior and Lord, then it is my prayer that today you would consider placing your faith in him and receiving the gift of eternal life that he has purchased for you. If you need to talk about this and would like to talk about this, I will be here and I would be privileged to be able to speak with you about it. If you are saved and a follower of Jesus Christ, then maybe you can be encouraged to notch up your witness to be able to tell people about the excellencies of this Jesus Christ who is our Savior. And you might be moved by the words of Psalm 96 that, that Michael read earlier. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Brothers and sisters, these are great marching orders for us. To send us off into this week, let's go proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Let's go out and blanket our community, our mission field, with this great proclamation. It's an opportunity we all have. It's a responsibility we all have. It's a privilege we all have. So let's not waste it, but let's delight in it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us through your Son, Jesus Christ. That you put your Spirit in us. That you gave us a heart to go out and be your witnesses. We pray, Lord, that you would send us, that you would send us forth even this week, that we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.